Over the past 10 or so years, Bitcoin and the blockchain revolution has kind of swept the whole world as a very new form of money and technology. But a lot of people still don't really even understand it. So I'm here to break down what is crypto, how does it work, and why should you care? Get this one requested a lot so i'm going to break this down make it a super kind of newbie friendly version so don't at me if you think well this isn't technically correct or whatever also don't forget that there will be timestamps on this so you can kind of jump around each little segment as you go so you can reference it for later all right let's jump in so first, before we start to try to understand the money of the future, or in this case, the present, it might be a good idea to actually go back and think, what is money? This is something we take for granted for a while because, you know, we trade between each other all the time. Everyone just inherently knows you work and you get paid for money and things cost money, but people don't really know what money is. And so I think that this is a very good place to kind of break that down to a root level before we can kind of explain what the best and newest form of money is. So what is money? Money is quite simply a language and a tool for communicating value. Listen to that over again if you need to. A language and a tool for communicating value. If I value something and I want to communicate it with someone else, there isn't built in like a universal language for value. Like let's just say I'm a little espresso cup and I want to trade it for something else because I have too many of them. Someone else has something else. You end up bartering. You trade because I have too many. I want the other thing more. Our needs and wants are maximized once we make that trade. But because there aren't always perfectly tradable goods and services and stuff like that, we, the human species, invented money as a universal language. So I could just say, I value things. I work and I accrue what we all value, whatever that, that might be. And that can spend that value somewhere else. And so things become so much more efficient because you can clearly and definitely store what we value, work for it, store it, and exchange it and just all kind of get exactly what we want. But the miracle of the modern era owes its success to our ability to efficiently communicate this value. If you want to read up on the history of money from barter to modern central banking, the Mises Institute has some great content and in nice short video format as well, which of course is linked in the description. Hey, but isn't money bad? Isn't it greedy and nasty? Isn't there more valuable things out there than just money? Money's one small, gross, materialistic thing, but real life happiness is about so much more than that. Well, not really. Money isn't actually evil in any sort of a way. It's just a tool for communicating value. What does the world value? What does everyone together, what do you value? What are you willing to pay for things? What are you not willing to pay for? All this kind of stuff. It's a tool, not the only tool, but it is a tool to help us communicate that value. So getting mad at money is kind of weird because you're just getting mad at the tool that allows us to express things. If you don't like materialism or don't like what people tend to like or work hard for or whatever, uh, first off, that's just like your opinion, man. But also, you're, you should be directing your ire at the people and what they value, not their language for communicating that. And don't forget that money is often a much more honest language than regular speech. People lie all the time about things, but they rarely will lie with their money by allocating their money somewhere that they don't really value. 
In many cases, involving money can result in much more honest opinions and predictions. Sports betting can make a lot of outcomes more certain, and prediction markets are surprisingly accurate. Naomi Brockwell has a great video on this if you're interested in the subject. Sometimes though, money doesn't always line up with the things that we actually value. A lot of times yes, but sometimes no. So for example, take nonprofits where you have a societal good that people really want, they value, but they're not going to pay for it directly. They're not going to just buy charity. It just doesn't happen. But they will donate to a cause and through a middleman called a nonprofit, then they end up still paying for that thing. When you have situations like that, a lot of times it's unfortunately due to some kind of intervention like the government getting in the way and causing perverse incentives, or it's just a symptom of the poverty of the money, where the money is a technology for expressing value. In most societies, we have one money that we communicate with, and it's just a general purpose thing. It's one language. And if we want to communicate other things, there just isn't something for that. And that's kind of what the cryptocurrency revolution seeks to do is not just evolve the base money like that, but allow for people to create any number of languages of communicating very specific values, not all of which is directly interchangeable. Sometimes it's something else. So now that we covered what money is at its root, what is cryptocurrency? Well, simply put, it's just digital money that anyone can use and no one can stop you from using. That's just really quickly the basics. If you really break it down, it's a digital record system with fungible tokens. Now what all that means is it's just like a digital record system of I have units of value. I transfer units of value from me to you. You transfer some to that other person. Just It's literally just a spreadsheet, like a record system. That's all money is anyway, but crypto is a digital money system. It's a digital record system for that of fungible tokens. Fungible basically means interchangeable, like one cent is the same as another cent. One piece of wood for your fireplace is the same as another piece of wood for your fireplace, basically. They're interchangeable. They're the same thing. And so who cares which dollar you get, which one or zero in your bank account that is. It just, they're all the same as long as they're all in the same kind of currency. Crypto is just an accounting system of these little non-unique digital tokens that you just kind of transfer around and they represent what you actually value if people give them value. If you're having trouble imagining crypto, think of anything that there's a digital record of. Money, cryptocurrency. Stocks, tokens. Rewards points, also tokens. The difference is that no one entity can control the record systems. Anyone can use it, but no one can tamper with it. Now, there's a whole bunch of different ways people have made cryptocurrencies, but there's a few key elements to them that kind of make them the best, that the best ones will have these. So first off, being decentralized, and that just means that no one group or one person, like a central bank or whatever, controls it and therefore can take it away from you or modify it in some way. Decentralized means that at least a few other big parties who are not dependent on each other all run the thing so that if something happens to one or two of them, then it still works. You can't just have one party take the whole thing over. So basically it's hard to take over. The second thing, which is often a byproduct of the first is censorship resistant, which means if I want to send you money or I want to keep my, I want to do whatever I want with my money. No one will be able to stop me from doing that. No one will be able to take my money from me. No one will be able to stop me from paying you. 
That's the basis of censorship resistance. Notice not proof because proof means that like the world is perfect and the world's never perfect. I mean, you could have a nuclear apocalypse. It just destroys everything. And in a complete reset of the world, you, there won't still just be your crypto lying around probably. So it's resistance, highly resistant to being censored, but it's not 100% censorship proof, of course. Third thing would be scarce, meaning that there's a finite number of this stuff. One of the biggest problems with uh, fiat currencies, with government currencies, is that they're not scarce, that the government can just print more and more and more, and that means that each individual one that you have becomes less valuable over time. Now, the amount of tokens that's the right amount is just completely up in the air and debatable, but what does give them value in part is that they're scarce, meaning if you have 100 units of value floating around there and you work hard for one of those, you're going to have one hundredth of the total value in that pot. And it's not like you work really hard for this, but then at some point there's just millions and millions of them. And now what you worked hard for is just like not worth very much anymore. And finally, and this is the key one, you got to be useful. You could just have some sort of little digital ledger somewhere that just has all these things really decentralized. So it's hard to take over. It censors it persistent. And the units that you of accounting you transfer around there are scarce but it's not useful for everyday commerce and things. So like one of these things with cryptocurrency is you can send value anywhere in the world to anyone. It's easy to verify. It's really hard to take down. It's secure very fast. And that is a lot of use as far as a communication tool for value. But then there's other things like you can do this privately, meaning that no one can tell who you're sending money to, how much you have, all this kind of stuff. Also, it could be programmable, meaning that under certain conditions, the system kind of runs itself. Like say, you do a specific amount of work and under these conditions, you will get automatically paid this much. Or you take out a loan, but you don't need to trust a bank or institution to do that. You just put up some collateral, get some other money out, and then after you're done with that, whatever, you pay it back and automatically refunds. Just that programmability is another thing that makes things useful. So to recap, you want a crypto that's decentralized, censorship resistant, it's scarce, and it's actually useful. As another note, decentralized tech, especially monetized decentralized tech, crypto, right, is kind of moving on to replace the whole internet and the way we do just about everything. So pretty much expect almost everything to be crypto in some way in the future, or at least have some little uh, fingerprint of that. And so that's also a good way of thinking of a lot of future technology that's sort of associated, but that you haven't yet wrapped your head around. Let's say you wrap your head around a digital currency, but then there's something else out there that is just, I don't know what this is. I don't know how to wrap my head around. A good shorthand for thinking about it is this is just like the crypto of other stuff. Eventually, everything that we do will become more digital, probably, more decentralized and censorship resistant and secure and all these other things. This takes us now to NFTs, which are one of the most misunderstood or just not understood at all technologies in the entire crypto world. In the early days, they were kind of overtaken with the basic kind of image-based thing where someone takes a, a ugly doodle and puts a little a digital wrapper around it and says, oh, this is super valuable. No, NFTs are not just that. They're Definitely not just that. There's so much more. But first, let me define it simply. NFT is an acronym for non-fungible token. 
Now, if you remember back, we were talking about crypto and money, digital money. Those are fungible tokens. So they're little digital records that can be exchanged for each other. They're all the same. You got like one of a million, one of 21 million Bitcoin, for example, or a piece of that or whatever. They're all the same. They're all interchangeable. Non-fungible tokens are just digital records that are unique. So if I mint an NFT, a one of one mint, that's it. There's This is the only one. If I do a one of a hundred, or there, then there's only a hundred that are like this exact thing. But each of those things, even though it's a series and they're kind of all the same, they can carry unique properties, unique owners, and they can be modified sometimes at a later date, whatever. There's a whole bunch of a rabbit hole on this. But basically just think about any record that's unique out there for anything that could and probably will be an NFT in the future. So if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the idea of why would an NFT have value, why would it be valuable to have a digital record of anything that's already out there? Just think of a better way of doing that. And it should be pretty easy to start being like, oh, I get why this is huge. It's not just, you know, bored apes and such. Art projects were some of the first NFTs to get wide public attention, derisively referred to as useless JPEGs. But that's far from the only or even the biggest use case. Tickets and passes, ownership titles, in-game characters and items, social media and digital identity, all are great NFT use cases. So some of you might be asking, well, why do I need an NFT? Why can't I just make a token? So you got like a cryptocurrency and those are all the main money tokens, but a lot of them let you issue your own sub tokens off of those. So let's say like shares of stock or something. Now, why would you use an NFT instead of that? Well, first off, NFTs are unique, but serialized. So you can issue a hundred NFTs of this exact same thing. So it's kind of like a hundred regular fungible tokens, except each of those things, first off is the number in that order. Like you're the fifth person out of a hundred to receive this thing here for example, and that that is not fungible. That's each one's unique, even though they're part of a series. But second, they can carry a lot of additional data. That's not just, this is this token, and here's a little like bit of text along with it. So you can like attach images to them. You can add some extra data and stuff like that. And you basically, there's just a lot more you can do, generally speaking, than with a regular token. And the cool part is they're modifiable or programmable. Now, of course, crypto is the units in crypto are supposed to be, you know, censorship resistant. They're supposed to not really change. You know, one unit equals one unit forever. You send them around. That's it. Um, one of the benefits of NFTs, I mean, the ownership thereof and some of the basic what they call immutable attributes don't really change. But there's a lot of value in being able to make some parts of them being able to be changed. So one of the more common examples of this, especially from the early days, is an in-game character or something. You play a game, you get an NFT character, and every time your little character does something, it interacts with a smart contract, and then you get added attributes, like, oh, the little image changes, or like, oh, you got more points. This thing carries the sword that does this, and all these kinds of things. And then the ending NFT that you have at the end of playing for a long time in one of these games, for example, is much more valuable than the beginning because it acquired all these attributes and changes. And the same thing could happen for just about any kind of record. Like imagine your rewards account with a coffee shop is an NFT. And it just it's like a digital punch card. And every single time you go in, 
that thing gets adjusted and then eventually it grants greater access and then there might be some like super exclusive party that's only for people of this level and above and if you've been coming to this coffee shop for so much time and you've punched it in you've modified it then you kind of have this little digital record that can now do this and so there's a lot of really cool things you could do with that Now we get into the tougher parts of this is how does it work? There's a bunch of really technical ways of explaining this and a bunch of people are going to get mad at me and say, this is not really true. This is not the way. Okay, whatever. Um, I'm going to break it down as simply as I can. Basically, all this is done through tokenized digital ledger technology or blockchain. There's variants like a tangle and things like that, but basically it's just a chain of digital records that are tokenized there's like tokens associated with it it's decentralized and open source meaning that anyone can download the code and start contributing to or running or participating in this system and it's all works together even though anyone can kind of plug in and start using it or trying to contribute towards it on their own so basically it's a bunch of computers where you run a little program and that kind of runs the whole thing as opposed to a centralized server system. So for example, Amazon and their infrastructure, let's just say, they just have a whole bunch of servers that they, the company control, and they all run on a system that has you know one entity basically that controls the whole thing. It's the opposite of that. It's just anyone can run on their little computer software and start you know contributing to this whole thing. Now there's something called a Sybil attack, which basically means you, your one computer, pretends like it's a ton of computers and that you represent a bunch of people and you just take over the network, even though it's just you. And so that's why there's anti-Sybil mechanisms, basically, that keep this whole thing secured. The thing you might be most familiar with, I'm sure if you've been around crypto for long enough, is something called proof of work or mining, which basically means, okay, look, we can't attach your identity to your computer or whatever to make sure that you're not spamming yourself multiple times over, right? But we can't fake how much work your computer puts into something. So there's a something called proof of work where you basically have a complex math problem, so to speak, that your computer just runs and just tries to solve. And basically it's a way of accruing computing power directed as specific thing. So this ends up being a whole bunch of specialized machines and things like that. But basically, if you try to attack the network or pretend you're someone else, you'd have to amass more computing power that's dedicated to solving this exact kind of problem in order to attack it. So that's why you have giant mining farms you know, all over the place running, spending a lot of electricity and things just to make sure that someone else can't just log in and just try to pretend like they're a big part of the network and just take it over. That's what's keeping the thing safe. Because if you don't have one entity saying, we decide everyone who's safe or not, if it's decentralized, you need some kind of a way to prevent people from coming in and taking over the network if they aren't you know, the network itself. The other common one is called proof of stake, which basically means instead of having your computer work at a problem like this or buying a bunch of machines that do that, uh, you basically show that you have a certain amount of the money on the network. So for example, if you have a certain amount of Ethereum, you stake it and then you run the network and someone trying to come in and run the network and do something malicious can't unless they have enough money to participate at a high enough level, unless it's most of the money of the Ethereum ecosystem. And if it is most of the money of the Ethereum ecosystem, it's not really like an attack at that point. It just is the network. 
So that kind of just makes it super expensive and difficult to try to attack these decentralized networks if it's designed correctly. So they'd have to spend a lot of money, a lot of energy trying to create these machines that mine or trying to acquire all the tokens to then stake. And there's a few other different consensus mechanisms, but that's kind of like the, the basic way of doing this. Remember, it isn't impossible to attack crypto networks. It's just really hard. You'd have to get control over most of the specialized machines built exactly for that purpose or buy almost half of the tokens produced or sometimes both. This can be really difficult when funds or mining machines are spread all across the world and if you do destroy the network, you destroy your own investment. And don't forget, because this is open source decentralized tech, you can always start over. So if you make an awesome coin and you have it unfortunately taken over by someone else, so this thing fails, someone gets most of the mining power or someone gets most of the tokens and all that and try to destroy it, you can literally just copy paste the code with a couple little differences and start up an entirely new network that's almost the exact same except those people aren't in control of this one. And if that's useful, if people using it value that censorship resistant network, they'll just jump right over. This has happened a few different times, uh, most notably with the Steam versus Hive split, where Steam was a network that a lot of people were using, and some guy basically bought enough power to control the network, and the people using the network decided to just make a completely new one right away, and just everyone jumped on that one. And so that just made the initial one just kind of worth nothing over time, or much less, while the new one kind of rose up and took its place very quickly because it was almost the exact same thing. It just sort of they just switched it over. That's always a great fail safe. The ability to just, if it doesn't work out, you can just start over easily. One thing that really makes this whole thing work that doesn't really happen as much in other decentralized tech that you see is the self-incentivization model. Whereas the system pays itself to run. Because one of the things, if you have a company and you can control an entire network like this, you get to charge people to use it if you can control it. But if it's a free open source, anyone can kind of plug in and use it. It takes a lot of money to figure out how to design it properly and to a certain extent run the infrastructure for it. Uh, but then if you're not getting any money for it, why would you do that? Non-incentivized decentralized open source tech is still a thing. I mean, you have it all over the place, but it's just not necessarily as robust because you, just, you have to rely on like a foundation, a nonprofit to maintain a lot of this stuff, or you just have to expect people will work for free to keep this thing going. That doesn't always happen. The DAO concept is really cool because that's a decentralized autonomous organization, meaning it's a group that can come together as one, but it's completely decentralized, meaning anyone can participate, anyone can run pieces of it, but it's also autonomous, meaning it doesn't require outside funding and things to work. Some popular cryptocurrencies such as Dash, for example, operate on the DAO model. Uh, Ethereum as a project has allowed a lot of people to start up their own DAOs for just about anything. It's a really cool concept that can be explored in the future and maybe help us get away from more centralized company type structures, but you know, we'll see. So we went over what is it and how does it work, but now why does it matter? So like, why should you care about all this stuff to begin with? Well, first, censorship resistant sound money is very important. It's extremely valuable to have some sort of a money, some sort of a value 
transmission and communication tool that is resistant to being censored, that someone can't just come in and block it, and is sound money, meaning it's got good scarcity properties and other things like that, so it's going to be valuable in the future to the same extent. This is a huge underpinning of a free society and human progress, is being able to just freely trade and not worry about your trading tool, your money, being you know diluted and destroyed over time. We've seen hyperinflation ruin entire economies and destroy the livelihoods of millions. But even in good countries, it steals your savings year after year. People's money has been directly confiscated or its use blocked for whatever reason. And even if you don't directly experience censorship, the fact of having to ask permission causes friction, which costs money. It's also the evolution of money tech. <laughs> and this is a little bit more of a squishy one, but basically, the technology of everything is advancing over time and you want the newest and best stuff out there, generally speaking. Obviously, it's a big generalization, but it's true. And so when you talk about money, whatever you use for money, you want to make sure you're on the latest stuff, that you're using the best that has been developed by the human race so far. And so this seems to be where everything is headed in this kind of direction of crypto and blockchain technologies and stuff. And you should probably want to use the best, most efficient money out there. Let's not forget that money is a human invention to make value exchange much more efficient than barter. The tech keeps getting better, but just the fact that some people have negative views on money shows you just how much better the tech still needs to get. Crypto is a big step in that direction. Also, as I mentioned with the language kind of analogy, um, this could be a really good way of moving towards ending the old conflict of value versus money, where money is what people value, kind of, but then they get mad at it because there's a lot that they value that isn't in money, and then they just, it's kind of this opposing thing, rather than just bringing together value and money more perfectly so we don't have these kinds of conflicts. It's also the evolution of just tech in general, that it's not just how do you pay people for things, it's just how do you like run websites, how do you execute contracts, how do you you know, store files? How do you do a whole bunch of things? A lot of this is being solved in a decentralized and monetized kind of manner through crypto. And it's just the evolution of where tech is going. It's also an awesome way to decentralize a lot of things that are kind of centralized under a few powerful institutions like government, such as property rights, data, legal contracts, a whole bunch of things like that, that essentially there's a system with a very few amount of people that kind of run everything. This is a way to just take back ownership of all of those societal underpinnings. Right now, government controls property and record systems, codifies agreements and laws, and enforces them through the threats of violence. We have the opportunity to change that by switching to systems that no one really controls, where we codify our own property and agreements, and write up our own contracts that increasingly can automatically enforce themselves. Economist Hernando de Soto, in his work The Mystery of Capital, found that much of the reason for poverty persisting in the developing world was because of lack of legal titling of owned property, and the lack of capital access that results in. If everyone has access to a decentralized public ledger of data and property records, we can start to solve big systemic problems like this. So that was a lot of stuff. And I don't really expect every single one of you to get every little bit of that. Just have it click right away. Uh, a lot of new radical tech 
doesn't really get fully understood, just sort of gets taken for granted over a period of time. I mean, how many of you ever learned with intricate detail how the internal combustion engine even works or versus an electric vehicle? I mean, a lot of times we just use it. So if you still don't get it, just understand that it's money and tech that no one can stop you from using or tamper with it. That's kind of the base value proposition. And that's a really cool thing. Just going back to basic economics of supply, demand, and prices should pretty much help you too. Just remember it's digital stuff that no one can control and it's scarce. And whenever something's valuable and scarce, people will put a higher price tag on it. So if all else fails, just start using it. Just play around with it. Start incorporating into your life a little bit and just see where that goes. Eventually, that might just be the way you get it is just by accepting it's part of life. Thanks so much for watching this. I hope this was helpful. If it is, I really hope you'll follow me on here and all my other channels. I'm on YouTube, Odyssey. I'm on audio only on via Anchor and Instagram, TikTok, you name it. Just look up Digital Cash Network and I'm everywhere. Also watch How to Live on Crypto. I'm going to be continuously making new content and updating that series over time because I'm trying to get everyone I can to live on this awesome, cool, decentralized money and other tech as I can. And so keep a lookout for that and stay tuned.